Welcome to the Climate Report. This is Hart Hagen, your host, and we are on episode number 261. Today we're going to talk about social wages and social costs. So this is the Climate Report. Our purpose here is to talk about how to solve the climate crisis. And one of the main things we have to do is get serious about democracy because we don't have a true democracy because there's such a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. You know, in a, if we had a real democracy, there would be a narrower gap between public opinion and public policy. The public policy would never perfectly reflect public opinion but it would be a lot closer than what we have now because, for example, 70% of people want Medicare for all, maybe closer to 80%, but certainly 70% of people want Medicare for all, according to a recent Fox News poll, and yet that's not what we get, is it? We don't have Medicare for all. We don't have single-payer health care. We don't have health care that's free at the point of service just because. Because we're not a democracy, it's more of a plutocracy. Plutocracy is the golden rule. Whoever has the gold makes the rules. That's a plutocracy, and that's what we have because so much of our public policy is driven by the prerogative of the people at the top to make more money, as if the people at the top don't have enough What they want is even more, and they are in charge of our public policy. So what we get is a public policy that reflects the needs of the people at the top to have even more money, more power, and more control. So what we want to do is we want to entice people to work for policies that benefit them. So John F. Kennedy said, And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. Well, he must have been talking to the poorest 80%, because the top 20% and the top 1%, they're always supposed to ask what their country can do for them. But it's time for the 80%, the 90%, the 99% to ask, what can our country do for us? especially those who are struggling, which is the bottom 80%. What can our country do for us? And then when we are not struggling so much anymore, then we can turn our attention to, hey, let's save the climate. Let's save the biosphere. Let's save the water. Let's save the air. Let's save the pollinators. That's the kind of conversation we will be able to have when our backs are not up against a wall. So let's talk about how to put people first by talking about policies like universal basic income, Medicare for all, saying no to toxic pollution, saying yes to strong unions, saying yes to free preschool, saying yes to free public college, saying yes to disappearing industries that should not exist which that that will be the social cost. When we get there, we'll be talking about the social cost. So we're talking about social wages and social costs. First, let's talk about social wages, what we want to ask for, and why. So number one, let's say yes to a universal basic income. So here's how that would work. 
Martin Luther King called it a guaranteed annual income and said, hey, we have a lot of poverty in this country. Why don't we eliminate poverty with the stroke of a pen by paying every person an amount equal to the poverty level so that there is no longer poverty? Because if you give people money at the poverty level, then in theory, you have eliminated poverty. So let's do that. So then, you know, Andrew Yang came along in the 2020 election and said, hey, let's give people a basic income in the amount of $1,000 per month. And, you know, that's okay. $1,000 a month is okay. It's a lot better than what we would have had. Problem is, Andrew Yang didn't really understand the problem with technology. He doesn't really challenge capitalism. He thinks, seems to think capitalism is okay. He's a good guy, but he seems to think capitalism is okay. I happen to disagree. Not that, you know, small capitalist businesses are fine, but when capitalism gets so big, then what you end up with is plutocracy. I like saying that capitalism is like a tiger. If it's a tiger cub, you might say, oh, how cute, but give it time. Give it time and it's going to grow into a big tiger. So if you have a tiger cub in your basement, maybe that's okay. For a while, that tiger cub is going to grow big. And the bigger the tiger cub gets, the more dangerous it is. And the bigger capitalism gets, the more dangerous it is. So small scale businesses, small scale capitalist businesses are fine. Small-scale capitalist farms are fine. Small-scale capitalist professional practices are fine. Small-scale capitalist restaurants are fine. Small-scale stuff is fine. But when it gets big enough, then it's not even capitalism anymore. Capitalism, you're supposed to be putting your money at risk. The people that have all the money and on Wall Street, the more money you have, the less you're putting anything at risk because for one thing, you're just feeding at the government trough anyway. So to clear up confusion, instead of saying capitalism is bad, I say plutocracy is bad. Plutocracy is the rule of the money, or the, you know, the golden rule. Whoever has the gold makes the rules. So a plutocracy puts the needs of the wealthy first, because that's how it works. The wealthy are the ones that have money. Money's in charge. So therefore, the wealthy are in charge. So therefore, what wealthy people want, and I'm not talking about millionaires. I'm talking about multi-millionaires and on up to billionaires. But, you know, plutocracy is where what people want, they get. So a plutocracy is, the, is a system of government and, a, and an economy that concentrates more and more and more power into the hands of the very few, concentrates more and more and more wealth into the hands of a very few. And it does that through vehicles like the military industrial complex, more power and money in ever fewer hands big food, big agriculture, more power, more money, and ever fewer hands. Big banks, more power and more money 
in ever fewer hands. That's a plutocracy. But what we really want is a democracy because we've always been told we have a democracy. So why don't we make it a democracy? So back to universal basic income, the reason a universal basic income is entirely justified. So some people would say, hey, wait, that's redistribution of wealth. And I'm like, yeah, that's what it is. It's redistribution of wealth. It's distribution of wealth downward. So when people complain about the redistribution of wealth, what they're complaining about is redistribution of wealth downward. And I say redistribution of wealth downward is entirely justified. You know why? Because our system is based on redistribution of wealth upward. Our system facilitates large-scale redistribution of wealth upwards. The, you know, we're extracting, so the people at the very top, because they have the levers of power, they're able to set up a system where you extract value from labor, you extract value from the environment. You extract value from our democratic institutions by buying our democratic institutions. We have the best Congress money can buy. One of these days I'm going to talk to a congressperson and I'm going to say, how does it feel to be bought and sold? because we have the best you know, Congress people money can buy. And so what they do is they give the president even more of a Pentagon budget than he wanted. So president's not even wanting more money for the Pentagon, but Congress wants to give more money to the Pentagon because you have all these defense contractors saying, we're going to give to your campaign if you give more money to the Pentagon because that's how we get paid. So that's a system of upwards redistribution of wealth. That's how, you know, the, the, the oligarchs and the plutocrats, the people at the top who are really in charge, that's how they set up a system where there's upwards redistribution of wealth. The taxpayer pays the Pentagon. The Pentagon pays the military industrial complex. The military industrial complex pays its shareholders. Shareholders make more money. Shareholders and the companies that they have shares in pay for Congress people to keep the racket going. And it's the same for big banks. Did you know that the big banks well, you know, they get bailed out every so often, right? You know, every so often, big banks get bailed out. Plus, we have this thing called quantitative easing, which is where the Federal Reserve just keeps plowing money into bonds and the stock market, propping up the prices of the stock market, propping up the prices of these bonds at taxpayer expense. And that's, you know, that's an upwards redistribution of wealth. Or when the big banks get bailed out periodically, as they're being done, you know, right now our government is bailing out banks and bailing out the stock market. And that makes it easier for them to get credit. When it's easier for you to get credit, that means you get more favorable interest rates. You get more favorable interest rates, that goes right to your bottom line because you're paying less on interest, you have decreased expenses because of your favorable interest rates, that goes to your bottom line and you make more profit. All of that happens at taxpayer expense. Big banks are making more money at taxpayer expense. In fact, one study 
Noam Chomsky talks about this. There was one study that indicated that the big banks wouldn't even be profitable if it weren't for their better credit rating, which gives them lower interest rates, all thanks to the taxpayers. So that's what I mean when I say our system through the military-industrial complex, through the big banks, through big food, through big agriculture, uh, is designed for upwards redistribution of wealth. So that's why downwards redistribution of wealth is entirely 100% justified. So one example of that is universal basic income. It would be entirely 100% justified for the government to just write a check to people just because you breathe air and you're a citizen of the United States, that's reason enough, we're going to write you a check to spend however you want, because we don't believe in poverty. And we believe that it's better for us to pay you money rather than have you do without. So that's what could have been done with the CARES Act. So the CARES Act was early in 2020, a response to the COVID crisis, supposedly, and people got $1,200 because of the CARES Act, and that's that. And, you know, people got $1,200, but something like 10 times that in total, something like 10 times that in total went to stock market, Wall Street, um, airlines, cruise ship companies, or just the Federal Reserve putting lots of money into junk bonds and other bonds and putting lots of money, buying up stocks so as to prop up the prices of the stocks. If we had capitalism, then we would allow the prices of those stocks to fall because that's how the free market would operate if only we had a free market. If only we had a free market, the prices of those stocks would fall to their natural level instead of the government pumping a lot of money into the stock market, into the bond market, to prop up the prices of stocks and bonds so that your rich donors can be happy with you. So all that is upwards redistribution of wealth. How about some downwards redistribution of wealth? So that's what a universal basic income would be, a downwards distribution of wealth. We can talk about what the amount should be. Andrew Yang said $1,000 a month. I don't think that's enough. Um, you know, Martin Luther King talks about putting it at the poverty level, which would be, you know, the poverty level is kind of ridiculously low, like $20,000 per family. Like you could be thirty dollars or $40,000 per family and still be poor in my view. So, you know, but if, but if every family had $20,000 a year, I think that would be a good deal. I think it ought to be closer to $30,000, $35,000 a year. But and, and it was, but if it were twenty thousand dollars, if it was twenty thousand dollars a year per person, then that would be like seven trillion dollars. I did the math, so seven trillion dollars, and it's like, hey, that's more than the entire federal budget. Yeah, 
because the you know I just think it's necessary. It's justified. It's like they're. <laughs> The Pentagon lost $21 trillion. The Pentagon has $21 trillion it can't account for, according to a study, you know, an article published by Forbes, and Lee Camp talked about this, and there are economists that have looked into this, and, you know, the Pentagon just freaking lost $21 trillion. So the government just, th- if you're rich, the government throws money at you and throws money at you and throws money at you. I think it's time to start throwing money at regular people so that people don't have to struggle, so that we can have a sane life, so that people can do what they want and not work for slave wages because people don't be, do their best work in this world when they're struggling to survive on slave wages. People don't create fun and interesting things when they are, you know, working 40, 50, 60 hours a week just to survive. We need to get people out of survival mode. That's why we need a universal basic income. So we want to get people out of survival mode by providing a universal basic income. We also want to get people out of survival mode by providing Medicare for all. So you know, we're the only industrialized country in the world that does not have health care that is basically free at the point of service. Why are we the only industrialized country in the world that does not have health care that is free at the point of service. And if you want to know the answer to that question, the answer is follow the money. We have a plutocracy. So plutocracy means rule of the rich. It means the rule of those who have money. Those who have money include the pharmaceutical companies and the health insurance companies and the hospital chains and the uh, you know, the American Medical Association, these are concerns that have money, but especially, number one on the list, the pharmaceutical companies. We pay exorbitant prices for drugs that were developed at public expense because the pharmaceutical companies are rich and they get their way. If we had Medicare for all, and if we could bargain with the pharmaceutical companies for a fair price, Uh, for the drugs, then we wouldn't have, we wouldn't be paying twice as much for health care as any other country in the world. We don't pay for quality, we pay for plutocracy. So let's have Medicare for all so we can get people out of survival mode. There's no reason in the richest country in world history for people to be struggling for survival. In fact, I hesitate to say this is the richest country in world history because averaging out the wealth doesn't mean anything if the wealth is concentrated into the hands of a very few. It's like if you lived in a world where this hypothetical world where most people are one foot tall, but a few people are 10 feet tall. Well, average height wouldn't be very meaningful in that situation, would it? An average wealth is not very meaningful in the United States. But we do you know, have a lot of rich people, and they should be taxed, and the, we should invest in the well-being of people. We should invest not only in the well-being of people, we should invest enough in people's living situation to where people can slow down, drive less, eat less fast food, do more things they enjoy 
so that they don't have to escape into corporate products, corporate services, corporate news, and corporate entertainment. So this show is about social wages and social costs. We're going to increase the social wage by giving everyone a universal basic income. We're going to increase the social wage by giving everyone Medicare for all. We're going to increase the social wage by providing strong unions. So union, another word for a union is collective bargaining. If you want to make people poor, then divide and conquer. It's like any war, divide and conquer. If every individual has to bargain individually for wages and salaries and benefits and working conditions, then game over. You have an individual person versus concentrated wealth, game over. But what's a corporation? A corporation, among other things, well, for one thing, it's about limited liability. But more to the point, a corporation is about collective bargaining for capital. So these, you know, libertarian ideologues want to say that a union is bad because it's a restraint on trade, it's a monopoly, it's even a cartel, it's even like a terrorist organization. But we don't want collective bargaining because that's against the free market. What's a corporation? It's collective bargaining for capital. A corporation is collective bargaining for capital. Uh, You know, wealthy people put their, pool their money When you buy stock, you're pooling your money. So you pool your money into this thing called a corporation. That way the capital has collective bargaining vis-a-vis labor. Why shouldn't labor have collective bargaining vis-a-vis capital? Plus, labor is what creates value. People who own the corporations want to distract us from the fact that we, the people, who work in a company create the value. We're there so they can make money. If we weren't there, they wouldn't make money. We are creating value for them. If they didn't have us, no value would be created. So that's why we need strong unions. So Strong unions, uh, one way to make strong unions is to make the laws stronger. But the only way we have stronger laws is to have stronger unions to begin with. And a strong union by definition, a strong union by definition is one that is strike ready. A strong union is an organization that is ready to strike. That's how the boss knows you mean business. So when you're ready to walk off the job, if the boss doesn't meet your demands and the company has to shut down for a little while, then that's the situation you want to be in. That's a strike-ready union. And strike-ready union takes a lot of organizing and takes a lot of work. But when you, you know, when you get there, it's well worth it. And in this regard, there's no other single person that I would more strongly recommend that you read than Jane McAlevey. Jane McAlevey wrote the book called A Collective 
bargain. It's well worth reading. The other book that she wrote is called No Shortcuts. If you want to know how unions could work, read Jane McAlevey. If you want to know how unions should work, read Jane McAlevey. So we need strong union laws, and we, uh, you know, uh, you know, NAFTA is an anti-union law. So NAFTA gives companies the ability to offshore jobs at the blink of an eye, at the drop of a hat. And so NAFTA is not even a free trade agreement. North American Free Trade Agreement. Noam Chomsky says that the you know, the only true words in that are North American because it's not free, it's not about trade, and it's not an agreement. The, the people of North America, the people of the United States and Canada and Mexico did not make that agreement. It was made behind our backs in a highly anti-democratic process. So it's not an agreement, and it's not about trade, not really. It's about capital rights. It's about the ability of capital to go where it wants to go. And so NAFTA is an anti-union agreement. The World Trade Organization is an anti-union and anti-democratic organization. We need to get rid of these things or renegotiate them with a strong presence of environment at the table and with a strong presence of unions at the table. So we need strong unions by making unions strike ready and then allowing those strike ready unions to not only negotiate better agreements with their own employers, but also take that level of organization into electoral politics and get pro-union candidates elected. And when we do that, we will be increasing the social wage. The social wage is a benefit that you get by virtue of breathing air and being an American. Medicare is something that you get by virtue of breathing air and being an American. So we need more social wages. Other social wages we need to look at are free preschool, because those are the most important years of a person's life, those developmental years, ages zero to one to two to three to four are the most important years for the development of the brain and the development of the young human being. Why are we leaving that to chance? Why are we not investing in free preschool? Why do we not have free quality preschool available for every child in the United States? Tell me why. And the answer is greed. The answer is we live in a plutocracy. The answer is we don't live in a democracy. If we lived in a democracy where people could get what they want, then we would have free preschool. And similarly, if we lived in a democracy where people could get what they want, we would have free public college. Why are we not investing in every American if they want for you know, free public college or a community college or trade school? Why are we not investing in people you know, to get the training that they need? We should. Most other countries, most other industrialized countries give people free public college. Or back in the day, you know, public schools were virtually free. 
back in the day. Back in the 60s and the 70s, it costs like ugh, less than $1,000 a year in tuition to go to a good state school like University of Kentucky, University of Louisville. So we need to forgive, we need to give people free public college so as to increase the social wage so that we're not struggling for survival and people that are not struggling for survival are then available to help solve the climate crisis. People who are struggling for survival are not available to help solve the climate crisis because they're too concerned with their short-term needs and their short-term, you know, survival. That's about all the time we have. Thank you for joining me. Come back soon. Welcome to the Climate Report. This is Hart Hagen, your host, and we are on episode number 262. Today's topic is the climate diet. The climate diet. And the word diet may sound like a sacrifice, but I'm going to show you how diet is a pathway towards abundance. So a lot of people in America today are struggling. And why are we struggling? Some may say people are struggling because it's their own darn fault. But then some of us say that maybe people are struggling because the system that we have does not work very well for very many people. So let's see how we, if we can talk about and work toward a system that works for nearly everybody instead of what we have now which is a system that only works for a lucky few. So we need to say that climate change is a big, fat, hairy deal. It is a problem that needs to be solved. And the purpose of the climate report is to talk about how to solve the problem of climate change. And let me tell you, here's how we will not solve the problem of climate change. We will not solve the problem of climate change by being narrowly focused on climate. And we will not solve the problem of climate change by being narrowly focused on carbon. So we know that too much carbon causes climate change. So far, so good. We've known that for 150 years. And the oil companies have known for 50 years that they were doing serious damage. Their scientists have known for 50 years at least that, you know, carb, we're, we're putting out a lot of carbon into the atmosphere. And this is going to cause serious problems for humanity in the form of global warming by way of greenhouse gases. So good for us. We know that, that carbon is a greenhouse gas. And good for us. We know that greenhouse gases cause the atmosphere to warm. But we will lose this fight if we think the struggle against climate change is just about climate change. There is a much bigger picture. And it, you know, so it's, it's not about climate. It's about limits. It's not about carbon. It's about limits. 
It's about the fact that we live on a finite planet. So the planet we live on, picture it as a globe. If you painted that globe once, like you're holding a globe in your hand, a model globe, so you paint the globe once, and then you let the paint dry, and then you paint it again, so you've got two coats of paint on the globe. Those two coats of paint are about how thick our atmosphere is. So everything depends on the viability of that atmosphere. And, and that globe, that Earth, is hurling through space at a thousand miles an hour. It's about a thousand miles an hour is the speed at which the Earth is going as it travels around the Sun. And that Earth is the only place we know of in the universe that can support life as we know it. It's the only place we know of that has any life. And certainly it's the only place we know of that supports life as we know it. And yet, you have some people living in fantasy land that says, well, if the Earth doesn't work out, we're going to fly to Mars and set up a colony there. Well, that's dumb. It's not dumb just because you want to do it, unless you consider how much resources it's going to take. Resources that could be much better used by spending those resources on people on Earth that actually need help. Half the globe, you know, half the uh, human, half of humanity, three and a half billion people live on less than five dollars a day. Three and a half billion people live on less than five dollars a day. If we want to live and survive and thrive as a species, our best bet is right here on planet Earth. Good old terra firma. We know of no other planet in our solar system or any solar system, we know of no other planet that is covered with 70% water. We need that water. Human, human beings are made of mostly water. Human beings need a good supply of fresh, clean water in order to survive. Why would we go to another planet that has no water? So I hope you'll agree with me that preserving our biosphere here on planet Earth is very important. The biosphere is simply a name for all the places on Earth that have life. And, you know, that biosphere represents lots and lots of ecosystems that are intricately connected with themselves and with each other, etc. So we're going to lose the struggle against climate change if we narrowly focus on climate change. So the, the, the struggle to preserve the climate should be focused broadly on preserving the biosphere. The, the, the struggle to save our climate should be focused broadly on saving all of the ecosystems that we have. But the problem with saving ecosystems is that is inconsistent with our business systems and our political systems. So our, our business systems and our political systems want to chew through everything that makes money. So all of our business decisions are made with the profit motive. 
all of this talk about the free market system and all of this talk about the free enterprise system? Well, you know, the free enterprise system needs to acknowledge limits because the earth has limits. And the free enterprise system needs to acknowledge limits because the earth has limits. Reality has limits. And yet we have a system that does not acknowledge limits. We have a system in which people talk about more and more and more growth. We need economic growth. What politician would go out on a limb and say, what politician can you imagine saying, you know, we need to slow down this economic growth. And yet, that's exactly what we need to do. Because economic growth is based on GDP or gross domestic product. So when they talk about economic growth, what they're saying is that we need more gross domestic product next year than we had this year. And hopefully this year we're going to have more gross domestic product than we had last year. But gross domestic product is nothing but a sum total of all the transactions that occur in our economy. So we're measuring the health of our economy by how much money is changing hands. We're measuring the health of our economy by how much money is flying around here and there and here and there Lots and lots of money is changing hands, so things must be good. But just because lots and lots of money is changing hands does not mean things are good. In fact, it might be things are bad. For example, we have this military-industrial complex that makes lots and lots of weapons of war. So when those weapons of war are manufactured, there's lots and lots of air pollution and lots and lots of water pollution associated with the manufacture of weapons of war, not least of all chemical weapons. Yes, the United States, saintly as it is, uses chemical weapons. What do you think Agent Orange was in Vietnam, but chemical warfare. Agent Orange was used to kill the forest, and Agent Orange was used to kill the rice fields. We are heavily involved, deeply involved in chemical warfare. Another type of chemical warfare is depleted uranium. So depleted uranium is this metal that's maybe twice as heavy as iron or steel or other things. So it, you know, because it's heavy, it sends out a lot of, you know, impact when it's incorporated into a bomb. But but depleted uranium is, you guessed it, radioactive. Isn't uranium part of nuclear power? Isn't uranium radioactive? So what they do is they take the uranium from our nuclear plants and it's toxic and it's radioactive and they put it into bombs and then they bomb Iraq or Syria, wherever we happen to be bombing today. We drop a bomb every 12 seconds. And when we drop a bomb every 12 seconds, that's bad for many reasons, but for one thing, we're not acknowledging planetary limits. We're not acknowledging that we have a limited amount of air here on this earth. We have a limited amount of clean water here on this earth. We're not acknowledging what should be evident from our Constitution and from our Declaration of Independence, that people have inherent and unalienable rights. 
And people in this world have the right not to be bombed. They have a right not to be bombed with bombs that contain depleted uranium. They have a right to not have their forests, uh, you know, destroyed by millions of tons of dioxin as it was in the Vietnam War. So people have a right to this, but you would never know it by the way Americans conduct our foreign policy. But I digress. The topic of the show is the climate diet. And a diet is simply a recognition that we all have limits. So what I don't want to say is that this is all about personal sacrifice. We need to, you know, we would be rightfully suspicious of somebody that wants us individuals to make all the sacrifice while the war machine is not making any sacrifices and Wall Street is not making any sacrifices and big food is not making any sacrifices. Big agriculture is not making any sacrifices. The insurance companies are not making any sacrifices. The health insurance companies, the pharmaceutical companies are not making any sacrifices. So why should we make sacrifices? We would be rightly suspicious of somebody that wants us to make all the sacrifices while they're not making any sacrifices. So we need, you know, the climate diet is much, 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 much more about big business making sacrifices and not so much, you know, people need to make some sacrifices. That's just part of being an adult. But what we don't need is people that feel like they need to be these big adults that are making all these sacrifices for climate, you know, because we want to slow down climate change. So we recycle and we have an electric car or we have a hybrid car and we we walk or bike when we can. And, you know, you're going to get 5% of the people to do all that stuff because they have a conscience as opposed to the 95% who are not doing any of that stuff for various reasons. But we can't allow the health of our climate to depend on people's voluntary sacrifices. We need for big business and the plutocracy to make sacrifices of their own. The plutocracy, a plutocracy means the rule of money. So when we say we want the plutocracy to make sacrifices of their own, what we're saying is that the the people at the top, the people that have the most money ought to be making the biggest sacrifices. The people with the most money ought to be giving up the most. Because why not? They have the most to give. And they, you know, people that have the most money are those that have extracted the most from everybody else. They've extracted it from labor, they've extracted it from nature, and they've extracted it from our democratic institutions. Those are the big three ways that you extract money and power and influence and resources and power. You extract it from nature, from labor, and from our democratic institutions. Show me a person who's very, very rich, and I will show you somebody who has extracted that wealth from nature, from labor, 
and from our democratic institutions. So people that have a lot and need to sacrifice a lot, the people that have the most need to sacrifice the most. So when we talk about a climate diet, we're talking about the plutocracy going on a diet. In fact, you know, the plutocracy, you know, the plutocrats are people that sit in at the tops of all these industries, you know, technology, industries and sectors, technology, military industrial complex, big food, big agriculture, big insurance. They sit at the top of these industries and they make a lot of money. And some of those industries need to go away almost entirely. Most industries don't need to go away entirely, but almost entirely. So when we talk about the climate diet, we're talking mainly about plutocrats need to go on a freaking diet. They need to give up a lot of what they have. So here's how that happens and here's how that works. So I've got a handy dandy list here and I've got a handy dandy, a couple of handy dandy lists. One uh, list is fill in the blank, reduce blank by 90%. We'll talk about that. And the other thing is no new blank. So exa for example, reduce defense by 90%. I even have a little rhythm that goes along with that. Reduce defense by 90%. Reduce defense by 90%. And uh, reduce industrial agriculture by 90%. Reduce industrial agriculture by 90%. Or this thing called economic development. Reduce economic development by 90%. Reduce economic development by 90%. Economic development is where, <laughs> a friend of mine said economic development is where, you know, they're pimping out the state. They're pimping out the, uh, you know, our county. They're pimping out our water. They're saying, yeah, use this water however you want. We don't care because we're making a lot of money. But then most of the people are not making a lot of money. They're just suffering the consequences of all this. So reduce economic development by 90%. And, uh, and, and so the other list, one list is reduce blank by 90%. Another list is no new blank. For example, no new buildings, no new roads. So we're going to talk about why that is not only not crazy, but it's sane. What we see around us is crazy. My proposals are sane and rational and calm. What we see around us is anything but sane, anything but rational, and anything but calm. So let's talk about what we can reduce by 90%. So <clears throat> always top of the list, always top of the list. Did I say always top of the list is reduce defense by 90%. Defense is a sham. It's like um, Smedley Butler, a general from about a hundred years ago. Smedley Butler said, war 
is a racket. And when President Eisenhower talked about the military-industrial complex, partly what he was saying is that war is a racket. Partly what he was saying is that you know people make money off of war. And people who make money off of war, we need to guard against them. President Eisenhower, we need to resist uh, the undue influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. So war is a racket. And, you know, Jesse Ventura was a Navy SEAL, and he says the same thing. War is a racket. Jesse Ventura fought in Vietnam War, and he'll tell you that the Vietnam War started because of a false flag operation in the Gulf of Tonkin. So the Gulf of Tonkin was a false flag operation because a false flag operation is when you kind of, you disguise yourself as the enemy and you say, oh, the enemy attacked us, even though the enemy didn't really attack us. But the Gulf of Tonkin, it's like, oh, enemy ships are being fired on in international waters. We, you know, so we need to, we need to go to battle to, uh, to defend our honor. People are attacking us. So the little bitty country of Vietnam was supposedly attacking us. So I'm just saying that war is a racket, and I'm not the first to say it. Smedley Butler said it. Dwight D. Eisenhower didn't say war is a racket, but he said, hey, we got to guard against this military-industrial complex because they want to make money. They want to make money. They don't care about lives. They don't care about health. They don't even care about defense. They're just trying to make money. And, uh, you know, Jesse Ventura, a Navy SEAL, he's, he's, you know, he's a peace He's a peace guy. He's a warrior who wants peace because he knows that war is a racket. So what I say is reduce defense by 90%. Reduce defense by 90%. And I also say reduce helicopters by 90%. Reduce helicopters by 90%. So, you know, notably, a couple of helicopters that the military uses. One is the Apache helicopter and another is Black Hawk helicopters. So, you know, one thing that comes to mind there is that Israel uses our Apache helicopters and Israel uses our Black Hawk helicopters because guess what? Israel doesn't make helicopters, so they have to buy them somewhere. So they buy our helicopters and then they use them to make war against the Palestinians. You know, they're, you know, defenseless civilian population, they're making war against the Palestinians with our helicopters. So what I say is reduce helicopters by 90%. Reduce helicopters by 90%. So I think this whenever I see a police helicopter going so they're going they're like that over my house. And they have that light and and it's like what the heck? Why are we doing this to ourselves? Why are we letting police? Why are we letting police helicopters fly over our houses? Are they protecting us, or are they surveilling us? Are they protecting us from these evil protesters, or are they 
you know, keeping tabs on us, keeping tabs on the protesters. And, you know, we live in some respects in a police state. And in some respects, you have, in some respects, I must admit, we do have freedoms in the United States. If you're white and if you're a person of means, yeah, we have freedoms. But if you're a person of color and or poor, then our government wants to lock you up. So what we're talking about on, on this episode is the climate diet. And in order to go on a diet, you have to reduce. So reduce defense by 90%. Reduce defense by 90%. And reduce helicopters by 90%. Reduce helicopters by 90%. Why do we need all these helicopters? It takes lots and lots of carbon to make a helicopter. It takes lots and lots of carbon to fly a helicopter. Why are we making all these helicopters? Why do we have all these helicopters flying overhead? Did you know that, you know, mile for mile, a helicopter takes a whole lot more gasoline or a whole lot more fuel, a whole lot more carbon than a fixed wing plane? And fixed wing planes take their share of carbon, but a helicopter takes a whole lot more. Why are we doing this? So, reduce helicopters by 90% and reduce new planes by 90%. Reduce new planes by 90%. Why do we have, why are we churning out more and more and more planes? We're churning out more and more and more passenger planes. We're churning out more and more and more fighter planes. Why are we doing this? It takes a whole lot of carbon to, to manufacture these planes, let alone you know, fly them. So, you know, the F-35 fighter jet, most expensive weapon system in history, and it doesn't work. I'm going to have to check into that whole thing about it doesn't work. But, um, you know, the, uh, the Saudis recently, you know, Trump sold the Saudis uh, $20 billion worth of arms, including a, a few F-35 fighter jets. So, you know, maybe the Saudis think they work. But one thing's for sure, when you create and sell a weapon system, you've locked in a lot of repairs. So they require service, you know, whether it's a boat, whether it's a plane, whether it's a helicopter, they require a lot of service. And that's one thing that they know, you know, these companies in the military industrial complex, these defense contractors, they know that once they sell you a plane or a boat or a helicopter, they know that you're going to need service. So then they get to sell you service. So we're, th th this is why I say there's so much ridiculous stuff that goes on in our economy. It is not hard for me, Hart Hagen, to imagine that we could reduce our economic activity by 90% and we would never miss it just so long as we take care of people. As long as we take care of people with a universal basic income, and as long as we take care of people with Medicare for all, then we would never miss most of this economic activity, especially as it relates to defense, especially as it relates to, oh, let's make lots and lots of bomber planes and fighter planes, and let's make lots and lots of Navy ships. Let's make lots and lots of submarines, and let's make lots and lots of aircraft carriers, and let's make lots and lots of cargo ships. You know, just the manufacture of these items alone takes lots and lots and lots and lots of carbon. Why are we doing this? I'll tell you why we're doing this, 
because it makes a profit and it makes a lot of profit. And if you're talking about defense, if you're talking about military contractors, they don't even have to sell to the public. They can just sell to the government. You and I provide the tax dollars. The government gives the tax dollars to the Pentagon. The Pentagon pays all these military contractors. There's no better way in the world to make money. And that's why they're doing it. They're doing it to make money. That's why the capitalist system, a.k.a. the plutocracy, is kind of insane. The most sane and rational thing to do would be to eliminate half of our economic activity and replace it with something that affirms life. Re eliminate half of our economic activity and replace it with something that affirms health and vitality. We need to stop spending all this time and money and brain power on how to blow people up with planes and helicopters and bombs and ships. And we need to take that and dedicate it to life. We need ecological health. We need physical health. We need health for the climate. We need health for our rivers and streams, and we need health for our bees, butterflies, and birds. And it is urgent that we dedicate ourselves to health and stop dedicating ourselves to the science of death, the art of death, the process of death. It is crazy. That's all the time we have. Thank you for joining me. Come back soon. One last word. If you want to contact me, it's info at theclimatereport.net.